This show is supported by the BS Podcast Network. They got tons of great content over there. Please go check them out. In addition, sometimes I say things on this show that sounds like medical advice. I can tell you right now it's not. If you want medical advice, go talk to your doctor, not me. By supporting this show, you're supporting a cause. That cause is making science accessible for everyone. Thank you for your support. Welcome back, everyone. Wouldn't it be cool if we found out that mushrooms could cure depression? Have you ever wondered, like, where mind-altering drugs came from? Even better, do you know how they affect your brain? In this episode, we're going to explore the history of hallucinogens and understand the mechanism of these drugs in the brain and what potential they have as a medical treatment. This topic has been discussed many times in a bunch of different classes in college, uh, especially psychology. In November of 2020, an article was published regarding results on a, a study of how shrooms and the relationship that they had with treating patients with depression. It turns out these results could actually change the future of mental health treatment options. By the end of this episode, we will have covered an introduction to hallucinogens, as in the drug. We will also go over the brain, neurons, and how they communicate. And then we're going to dive into depression, uh, its cause, its treatment, and the possibility of a new drug. A hallucinogen is a drug that causes hallucinations, obviously. Uh, Sensations and imagery that seem like they're real, but they're not. Um... There are two types of hallucinogens. First is classic, a classic hallucinogen, and it causes your typical auditory and sensory and imagery hallucinations. The second is a dissociative hallucinogen, and that causes the user to feel disconnected with their body. Most people actually associate this group of chemicals with drugs, um, like street drugs, because, uh, you know, the popularity of them. And it's why, that popularity is why we don't use them as actual medical drugs like they were intended for. In the 1940s, the discovery of LSD led to its development as a potential treatment for mental illnesses. Uh, By the 1960s, that drug had gotten out on the streets and was widely abused and stigmatized. And as a result, that drug was put on the controlled substances list. Uh, And now it's it's really hard to get a hold of. And it kind of stopped all research for uh, mental illnesses and the use of hallucinogens as a treatment. Uh, Hallucinogens were actually really commonly used in earlier cultures, such as... uh, the early Azteca and um, Native American cultures, but they played a large role in spirituality and religion. Um, they used them to feel more connected with their gods and their their higher powers. Let's talk about common hallucinogens and how they're used. First, we're going to talk about the classic hallucinogens. Some of these you're probably going to know, some of them you may not. LSD which is uh, lysergic acid diethylamide, 
which is one of the probably the most powerful and most famous uh, hallucinogens. It's also known as acid or uh, tabs. Um, next, we're going to talk about uh, psilocybin, which is going to come into play here later on. Uh, and that comes from mushrooms. So if you've ever heard of magic mushrooms or shrooms, that's psilocybin acting. Pyote, which comes from a cactus, but it can also be made to be synthetic. Additionally, there's DMT, which is a chemical that's found in plants. And you can use it to make tea, it can be made in a lab, or it can be dried out and smoked. Now here's a list of dissociative drugs. First, PCP, which is an extremely common one. And these drugs, these dissociative drugs, are actually what we kind of used. Uh, we use them in medicine often. So PCP was originally developed in 1950s as a general anesthetic for surgery. It's no longer used because it turns out there's serious side effects. Uh, it's, it's found in various forms um, and sometimes referred to as angel dust, hog, love boat, and the peace pill. Ketamine was used in surgery, uh, is used as a surgery anesthetic for animals and humans. They still use it to this day and uh, EMS providers also use it. Um, there's a protocol called excited delirium, which is uh, essentially that says that you can use ketamine to sedate a individual if they are in a state of uh, delirium. It's now also sold on the streets as a powder and pills, but it can be injectable. Uh, it's commonly used in EMS, like I said. It's also known as Special K and Cat Valium. Here's one that you've probably had. Yeah, that's right. I said that. One that you've probably had. Dextromethorphan. Also known as DM. Also known as Mucinex DM. It's a cough suppressant, um, and when you take too much of it, it can be a dissociative drug a.k.a. Lean and DXM. Uh, at this point in time, I'd like to tell you, don't go take a bunch of cough medicine, please. It's not a good idea. <laughs> Lastly, we're going to talk about salvia. Salvia comes from plants and is typically ingested by chewing on the leaves and then like drinking the juices, uh, but it can also be smoked or vaporized. And we know that these drugs alter the brain. Specifically, they alter mood, thought processes, perception, experience of the self, and more. And it's fascinating to me that, you know, there's these chemicals that can interrupt these, uh, these communication lines in the brain and cause all of this crazy stuff. I mean, I've never tripped on acid, uh, but I've heard plenty of testimonials, and it, it's really, it's crazy. It sounds bizarre, um, and it's actually a, a huge reference in pop culture, um, and it would be amazing to see any of this be used as a potential drug. I guess we'll find out if it can be. So let's start talking about the brain a little bit. We're going to talk about the anatomy of a neuron. And what's a neuron? A neuron is just a specified brain cell. It's just a brain cell. They're long and skinny, and they're really, really skinny in the middle. And that skinny part is called the axon. On one end, they have a larger head with a nucleus. And on that same head, there's a bunch of different little fibers coming off like roots of a tree. These little roots are called dendrites, and they feel around and trying to make connections with other neurons. 
These dendrites then connect to the tail end of another neuron, and that tail end of the neuron is called the axon terminal. The dendrites and the axon terminals arrange really, really close together, but they don't touch. They leave a little bit of space. This joint between neurons and dendrites and axon terminals are called a synapse. Neurons communicate by sending chemicals across the synapse, and this release of chemicals is triggered by an electrical impulse. The chemicals are called neurotransmitters. They are special chemical messages that are sent between neurons, and they trigger different mechanisms, and those mechanisms do different things. So let's talk about seven common neurotransmitters and what they do. The first neurotransmitter is acetylcholine. This is very widely distributed throughout your body, and it plays a large role in the passive portion of your nervous system, such as digestion. Next, dopamine. Dopamine is probably one that you've heard of. Uh, it plays a role in motor control, but it also has a huge role in motivation behavior, arousal, reinforcement behavior, and reward behavior. It's known as the feel-good transmitter. It's released when we eat something that we're craving or during sex. Uh, it, it really just helps contribute to the feelings of pleasure and satisfaction. Next, we're going to talk about GABA. GABA stands for gamma-aminobutyric acid. And this is an inhibitory uh, neurotransmitter. And what that means is that when this is released, it's stopping something from happening. It's stopping a mechanism. So when neurons get all worked up and overexcited because they're receiving all these neurotransmitters and all their signals and they're trying to do stuff and they're getting all excited, GABA is released. And what that does is it binds to those neurons and it calms them down. It inhibits those excitatory uh, mechanisms. And as a result, uh, this is actually kind of correlated with uh, the release the release of GABA is correlated with the control of fear and anxiety. Next is glutamate. Glutamate is GABA's best friend, except they're opposites. They work together. Um, when GABA is trying to slow stuff down and get things under control, it's trying to really control glutamate because it acts in opposition. Glutamate, when it's released, triggers a whole bunch of excitatory responses in, in the neurons. And... As a result, high levels of glutamate can lead to insomnia, uh, concentration problems, mental exhaustion, and low energy. Next, histamine. Histamine is a neuromodulator. It's a neurotransmitter, but it acts as a modulator. That means that it manages the release of other neurotransmitters and moderating their presence. Um, these altered levels of histamine could result in less control or over-control of other neurotransmitters, and as a result, it can produce a wide range of possible results. Norepinephrine is another one, and that acts as a neurotransmitter, but it also can act as a hormone. Um, as, a, as a neurotransmitter, it plays an important role in attentiveness, emotions, sleeping and dreaming, and alterations in norepinephrine have been linked to mood disorders such as manic depression. Lastly, we're going to talk a little bit about serotonin. 
Serotonin is another neurotransmitter in the brain, and it plays a large role in mood, emotion, appetite, digestion, uh, and it actually has a role in the sleep-wake cycle as it has a relationship with melatonin as well. One explanation for depression is called the serotonin hypothesis. The serotonin hypothesis is about 50 years old or so. It proposes that diminished serotonin activity or levels plays a minor role in the complex workings of depression. There's been some evidence to show that when we impair serotonin function, it can cause clinical depression in some cases. Those cases were mostly correlated with people who had been in, had, had depression and are then in remission without drugs. And then we inhibit their serotonin levels, and as a result, they start to become more depressed again. People who have no history of depression did not show signs of depression after their serotonin were inhib was inhibited. Uh, a real quick aside, if you hear me mention clinical depression, uh, clinical depression is essentially the diagnosis of depression rather than the feeling of depression. Those are two different things. Uh, you can feel depressed but not be depressed, just like you can be diagnosed with depression but not feel depressed at this time. Does that make sense? I hope so. We still explore this hypothesis, the serotonin hypothesis, despite the lack of research evidence, right? Because like I just said, we see some evidence, but it's not overwhelming and it's not stand out that serotonin is the reason for depression. All these neurotransmitters work together to create this environment that is your mind. And serotonin is just one of those factors. And it's been the most associated with depression uh, for this reason here. A very common class of drugs called SSRIs act to increase the levels of serotonin in the brain. They do this by actually re uh, stopping or inhibiting a mechanism that absorbs serotonin, right? So there's a bunch of serotonin floating around. This mechanism uh, in the neurons is trying to bring that serotonin in so it can release it again later. Uh, and this inhibits that, that mechanism so that the serotonin levels stay outside of the cell in the brain where they're firing on receptors and, you know, boosting your serotonin levels and boosting uh, your emotion. But anyway, this has been shown to help patients with depression. So you have conflicting evidence. You know, when you look at it from the, the side of things where you're trying to prove that serotonin causes depression, you can't. But when you give them a drug that increases their serotonin levels by, by proxy, it does. And now this conflicting information kind of leads us to believe that serotonin does have a role and it is important, but it's not the whole picture. Additionally, uh, researching this ha has contributed to our understanding of how serotonin influences our mood um, in depressed patients. What we've seen from this research is that when patients are taking an SSRI, they are actually, they respond better to emotional information, right? So, something that might cause you to be depressed, if you heard it, you would respond better to that. And as a result, it's SSRIs are actually uh, acting on our emotions and not our moods. 
Emotions and moods, they're very similar, but they're different. Emotions are short, lo- uh, short-lasting feelings, whereas moods are long-term emotional states. So what does this have to do with shrooms? That's a great question. Psilocybin, serotonin, and depression all have a relationship. Remember, psilocybin is that, that mushroom, that magic mushroom drug. Okay, So psilocybin is the active ingredient in those magic mushrooms. And it's a, uh, the species of mushroom is actually called psilocybin cubensis. It has been shown that hallucinogens have a high affinity to different neurotransmitter receptors. Affinity in biochemistry is a molecule's ability to bind to its receptor. So a molecule with a high affinity for receptor X is going to really bind to receptor X all the time and as often as possible. Whereas something with a low affinity isn't really attracted to the receptor. It binds to it, but it's not as excited to hop on and, and you know, buddy up with the receptor. Um, so specifically, uh, hallucinogens such as psilocybin um, correlate best with the serotonin receptor, 5-HT. It has a longer, more complex name, but we're going to refer to it as 5-HT. So we're going to take a little quick aside and talk about animal models a little bit. So a lot of research is done in mice and rats. And at any time, any animal model, when you say that an animal model is a knockout model, it just refers to the fact that that animal is missing a very specific gene. uh, And they're missing it on purpose so we can see what happens when they don't have it. In this case, uh, it was found out that psilocybin correlates to the serotonin receptor because they took uh, mice that were knockout 5-HT mice, which means that they were missing that 5-HT receptor and that 5-HT gene, okay? And when they did that and then they gave the mice uh, psilocybin, they didn't have any reaction. Now, compared to the... Uh, mice that did have that receptor, that did have that uh, gene, they did hallucinate and they had a, 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 a hallucinogenic reaction or activity. Additionally, a study was done where they gave people shrooms uh, and a certain group of them got a 5-HT antagonist along with it. A 5-HT antagonist is just a drug or a molecule that they give someone that is going to outcompete to bind to that receptor. He is going to, uh, you know, throw elbows to get on that receptor first before anything else can. And when it gets there, it doesn't want to come off. Okay, so that's an antagonist in biochemistry. Um, so they gave people shrooms and they gave them this 5-HT antagonist and that 5-HT runs up to the receptor, binds to it, and it's like, I'm not letting anything bind to this receptor. This is my receptor now. Um, and as a result, the people that ate the shrooms and had the antagonist, they didn't react to the shrooms. They didn't trip. The people that didn't have the antagonist did. So this information has actually... Uh, shed some light on the fact that psilocybin and serotonin are likely 
have some sort of relationship. They're, they're connected in some way, right? Because they're acting on the same mechanism. They're binding to the same mechanism. That might not sound all that crazy. However, it's important to remember that receptors and their, uh, their molecules are extremely specific in most cases. Extremely specific. So this is big news that, you know, psilocybin is acting on that serotonin receptor and it starts to get people thinking. In November of 2020, an article was published and it was a case study where they took patients with moderate to severe depression and those patients got two doses of psilocybin pills, one and a half weeks apart. Uh, I think the, the dose was two milligrams. I'm not sure what that is in terms of like what people eat on the on the street and to trip. I don't know what dosage that is, but they got two milligrams, one and a half weeks apart. Before they got that drug, they got therapy as well uh, as during and after taking the drug. They got therapy the whole time, and they also got other support from the researchers. So when using a common depression rating scale, which is just a, a scale that uh, we use to judge how depressed someone is, um, their average score, the average score of the participants taking psilocybin was 22.9, with 52 being extremely uh, depressed and zero being not depressed at all. Their average score was 22.9. After the psilocybin and after four weeks has passed since after four weeks passed after the second dose, the average score dropped to 8.5. For reference, Seven or less is considered to be not depressed. So let's kind of make sense of how this works and, and how this might be a possible solution to depression. The issue with serotonin is it doesn't pass through the blood-brain barrier, which is this very specified uh, mechanism that essentially says, you know, these molecules are allowed into the brain and these aren't. And that blood-brain barrier is extremely important in, def uh, in protecting our brain from chemicals and toxins that can hurt us. Although alcohol can still get by and so can these uh, drugs. So we have to increase serotonin by rigging the system because we can't just pump serotonin into your veins and say, there you go, feel better. Like, it doesn't work that way. It's not going to go anywhere. It's actually probably going to cause more harm than good. Uh, but it doesn't go to the brain. So we have to get something in that can pass the blood-brain barrier, but also boost serotonin levels. So that's where the SSRI comes in. An SSRI stands for uh, Selective Serotonin Reuptake Inhibitor, right? And that's that mechanism that we talked about earlier, where it prevents the serotonin from being reabsorbed into the cells, therefore it stays out and about and it fires on their receptors and boosts your serotonin levels and uh, the effects of serotonin. Okay, so psilocybin is a drug that theoretically would be successful because it is similar to giving the brain pure serotonin. What I mean by that is when psilocybin binds to the serotonin receptor 5-HT, it doesn't have a different effect, you know, it still causes the receptor to do its job. And that receptor is the same receptor that serotonin is binding to when serotonin is doing its job. So 
instead of, uh, theoretically, instead of giving people pure serotonin or a chemical drug that boosts serotonin by a secondary, mechani- uh, secondary mechanism, and theoretically, we could just give people psilocybin and it'd be similar to boosting their serotonin levels, right? So this was a super small study, uh, very, very short and uh, I think in total only had 24 participants. In terms of statistics, that's not good enough. Um, we need a lot of people to do this. We need a lot of participants in a study like this in order to prove that, hey, there's a positive correlation here. For example, to give you an idea of numbers, um, in the Pfizer publication that essentially got Pfizer uh, approved as an FDA drug, that um, that study that was like, hey, we're going to prove that this worked, that was done on a population of over 60,000 people, right? So we're talking about 24 here. That's not going to get it approved as a drug. If we want to approve psilocybin as a drug, we're going to need a lot more evidence. So don't get excited just yet. So we talked about what a hallucinogen is, right? It's a drug that causes hallucinations, and those hallucinations are sensations or imagery that feels real, but it's not. There's two categories of hallucinogens, right? The classic hallucinogens, which are like LSD and psilocybin, and then there's the dissociative ones, such as ketamine and PCP. Uh, Most people associate this group of chemicals as uh, street drugs. And really, they were designed to be medical drugs. They were designed to be used medically, right? But a bunch of people found out what they could do. They used them on the street, had a whole lot of time, you know, a a fun time. Um, They partied, uh, had a lot of sex, and drank a lot of alcohol. And now it's bad. Now it's uh, regulated. So that regulation has really had an effect on our research uh, into hallucinogens as a potential use for treating clinical depression and other psychiatric disorders. Uh, we talked about the brain a little bit. We talked about neurons and how they work, right? Uh, we talked about what a neuron is, how it looks, and uh, how they communicate, right, via neurotransmitters. And there are seven major ones, including serotonin. Serotonin is important because it's been shown to be a, a, a decent part in the disease process of depression and how depression works and what causes depression. Serotonin has played a role in that. Uh, it, it's implied that diminished serotonin levels contribute to depression. And in turn, depression can be improved by increasing how much serotonin receptors are triggered. Right, And that's where psilocybin comes in. Uh, psilocybin is a hallucinogen, uh, magic mushrooms, that is a possible option for an antidepressant drug. If we can prove that it increases mood, uh, improves mood, and improves um, uh, emotional response, then it's possible that psilocybin can be used. But like I said, we need to increase that study. Lastly, we talked about psilocybin as a possible antidepressant drug, right? Uh, That small study showed uh, decreased severity in depression just in four weeks after the second dose. 
four weeks after the second dose. People with depression, uh, if you under if you've experienced this, you probably know four weeks is a, a remarkable timeline to feel better compared to you know years and years of trying drugs that one might work. But uh, it's clear that we need more research, right? And the only way we can get more research is to evaluate the ethics of using hallucinogens, right? Because it's federally controlled and, you know, not everyone is fond of, you know, getting a large group of people together, giving them uh, mushrooms and saying, hey, I hope you feel better, like, for science, right? Yeah, no, a lot of people are not really fond of that idea. So, it, you know, it leads me to question, where would we be without... Uh, if hallucinogens were not federally controlled, right? If people in the 40s, 50s, and 60s didn't go, you know, crazy, I just had a realization. That's where the that's where the phrase hog wild comes from. Have you ever heard that phrase? Sorry, this is completely off topic. The phrase hog wild? Well, apparently PCP is referred to as hog. Wow. Man, I'm teaching myself something here. But anyway, you know, where would we be if hallucinogens were not federally controlled? It's crazy to think about. And uh, I hope we get to wherever we're supposed to be. And if this works out to be a drug that could boost depression levels, I'm all for it. I support it. But I support it with proper research and evidence first. I'm not just going to go out here and uh, say that you should be taking psilocybin because we have no study on the long-term effects of the use of psilocybin we have no study on uh what it could do if you overdose we have you know all this information all these unanswered questions so to wrap things up don't go do drugs to make yourself feel better because it's not recommended and there's not enough research about it at this point i want to thank you for listening as always, you can follow the show on Twitter at Science Basic Podcast, on Facebook at It's Basically Science Podcast, and you can follow me on Twitter at Burgess Adam. I encourage you to share this with a friend. For feedback, inquiries, you can contact me at sciencebasically at gmail.com. Thank you. Thank you.